Okay, good to be with you again. <coughs> now, uh, you, you'll find a belief in the pockets in front that there are, there are Bibles, ESV Bibles, and there's a particular reason that if you haven't got a Bible with you, I'd quite like you to take that Bible out today and turn to the very last two chapters of the whole Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, because I'm going to do something a bit different. And it would be really helpful if you have those Bibles in your hand. It's the last two chapters of uh, the New Testament that you turn to, so the very end of the Bible, uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, this is my second week here. I realize that this is summer holidays. People are coming and going. People uh, away who were here last week and people have come in uh, who weren't here last week because of the summer holidays. Uh, but uh, I decided to connect two messages and what I spoke about last week was our responsibility to the world. And uh, I said I would link that to this week, and we're going to talk about the renewal of the world. Uh, but uh, in doing that, I'm not going to preach in quite the normal way. What I'm going to do is actually to read through these two chapters at the end of the book of Revelation and simply explain them as I go. Uh, because in that way I will be able to talk about the renewal of the world, and I can give you a picture of heaven, because actually these two chapters are the, the, the two longest chapters in the Bible, or the, the longest passage in the Bible, I should say, that actually gives us a description of heaven. Uh, and I find that many people are very vague about heaven. I often say that uh, uh, the, the second most asked question of me in all the years I've been in ministry is what happens when I die uh, as a Christian? Uh, the first thing that I'm asked is about can I lose salvation? Well, no, you can't. But the second thing is, so I've answered that, the second thing is uh, what happens uh, when I die? Uh, and so, uh, in a sense, uh, I'm going to give you an overview of that this, this morning. But so I'm going to read through these two verses, uh, these uh, uh, two chapters and explain them as I go. Now, la last week, if you were here, uh, even if you weren't here, I still said the same thing, uh, I, uh, I talked about our responsibility to the world, and uh, one of the things I talked about was the fact that we're in training for reigning because God is going to renew the whole universe and He's going to renew this earth. And uh, I'm going to pick that up uh, today as we go through uh, these particular verses and see what they say to us. So, uh, John, the apostle, is uh, writing at the end of this book of Revelation. He's been describing in general terms what is going to happen throughout world history. And now, at the very end of the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, we actually get a glimpse into the eternal age and a description of what eternity is going to be like. Now, if you come to church regularly, we're always telling you that one day you're going to die and you're going to go to heaven. But I find that many Christians are vague about heaven and think it's up there, out there, somewhere. Well, I hope today that you'll get a, a fuller picture and understanding of what our eternity is going to be like. Now, the very first verse of, of chapter 21 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And for this reason, at this point, all biblical prophecy is fulfilled. So you go to Isaiah, and you'll find three times that Isaiah, speaking as the voice of God, says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. You come into the New Testament, and you will find that in Matthew 19, Jesus speaks about the regeneration of all things. I spoke about all things last week. That's all creation. Jesus said all things are going to be regenerated. The whole universe uh, is going to be regenerated. Uh, 
If you go to uh, Acts chapter 3, you'll find that Peter is preaching and he says that Jesus waits in heaven until the time comes for him to renew all things, to renew the whole of creation. You go to Romans 8 and you'll find that Paul is saying that the whole earth is at the present time groaning, waiting for its day of liberation and freedom. Uh, you go to Ephesians chapter 1 and Paul picks up the same theme and he speaks about the fact that God has revealed to us that he's going to bring everything into total harmony and unity under the headship of Jesus Christ in the whole of creation. You go to Colossians 1 and we were looking at that uh, last week and it talks there about the redemption of all things, of the whole creation. If you go to uh, the uh, second letter of Peter, you'll find that Peter there speaks that we wait for the day when everything that's created will be actually burnt up in fire and out of that conflagration there will emerge a new heavens and a new earth. So this is a repeated theme throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament Testament, that there's going to be a renewal of the whole of creation. Therefore, when you come to Revelation 21 and verse 1, you come to one of the most important verses in the Bible because John says, I, I see it. All right? He's given a revelation of what happens at the end. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And here is a fulfillment of all biblical uh, prophecy that at the end of time, at the consummation of the age, John says, I see all that has been promised, the new heaven and the new earth. Now let me say immediately that the word heaven there can be a little confusing. In the Greek, the word heaven is always in the plural, so it's actually, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. There's no need to think of heaven here in a kind of rather uh, sort of specialist way as the dwelling place of God in a specialist sense. It's speaking of the whole of the created universe, the heavens. All right, that's what it means. It's because it's put alongside earth. So I saw a new heavens, all right, a new universe, if you like. I saw a new cosmos. I saw a new heavens and a new earth for the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. Let me say immediately that there's always been some debate. Is it God's intention in the end to completely annihilate the present creation and then to bring into being a whole brand new creation? Most biblical scholars do not believe that, nor do I. It should be understood more as a renewal of the creation. So when it talks about a new heavens and a new earth and the first heavens and the first earth had passed away, it means that the, the creation has passed away in its present form, but then it's completely renewed and regenerated. And so it kind of looks brand new. And God is going to do this at the consummation of the ages when Jesus Christ returns. Now, living in Paul and Bournemouth, you may be very disappointed that the sea was no more. All right, but uh, I have some possible good news for you, and that is that in the Jewish mind, sea represented barriers between nations and separation. And maybe that's the symbolism here. It's saying in the renewal of all the creation, there will no longer be any barriers or separation between the nations. So maybe we'll still get on the beach for a picnic after all, even in the new heavens and the new earth. 
So let's not have kind of vague ideas about heaven. What we're being taught here is actually at the consummation of the age. It doesn't all disappear into some ethereal, mystical kind of vague thing up there called heaven. Actually, we're talking about the renewal of the entire universe, a new heavens and a new earth. What about us? Well, the next verse tells you. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we may be very familiar with that verse, and so familiar, actually, we overlook what a silly description it is. I mean, here you've got a city dressed as a bride. Who's ever heard of anything as stupid as that? I mean, talk about here comes the bride all fat and wide. I mean, really, this is a city uh, dressed as a bride. But we know that this is a combined picture uh, where Jerusalem represents the city of God or the people of God because it's the city of God. But the bride we've already met in the book of Revelation is in fact the church and the church is described as the bride of Christ which will be married to Christ at the consummation of the ages when Jesus comes again. So the Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God, the bride, the church of God, these two pictures are combined to tell us that actually at the end of the age and with the renewal of the heavens and the earth, the church does not live mystically up there, out there somewhere. Actually what happens is that the church comes and lives upon a renewed earth. And if you've never really understood that, please understand it now. We are not going to be floating around in a disembodied state up there on a fluffy cloud. I think I said this last week, playing a guitar on a kind of endless bank holiday Monday. We're actually going to be here on the earth in raised up, resurrected bodies, that's taught also in the New Testament, on a renewed earth in a renewed creation. And therefore you need to know something about this renewed creation and what we're going to be up to in order to make heaven interesting and understandable and actually that we'll look forward to it. Now, not only are we going to be here on the earth in a renewed creation, but also everything is going to change. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So with the church on a renewed earth, God is going to be with us. Now, you might say, well, surely God is with us now. And the answer is, yes, he is. But I think we need to understand this in an intensified way. That actually as the church is here, as, uh, uh, as the, the people of God on a renewed earth and a renewed creation, God will be so obviously and tangibly and completely and if you like, visibly, I would suggest, with his people. All right, we're talking about the eternal age now. We're talking about heaven, right? Don't think up there, out there vaguely. Think about new bodies on a new earth and with God visibly, tangibly present in our midst. And the whole order of things change. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everything is going to change, a whole new order, and people at the moment, uh, they, they, they shed tears in times of illness and suffering, people fear death, uh, uh, people weep for the lost, uh, people are crying in agony, people are suffering pain and cancer, 
when the end comes and all the universe is renewed, brothers and sisters, no more. All right, the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Everything is going to change. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is so important. It needs to be recorded for us to read and to study and to understand. And then I love this, verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. It's going to come a, a day, brothers and sisters, when this passing age will be over, when war and suffering will cease, when the decay of the present earth and the, the pollution of our planet, when cancers and illnesses and everything else that people suffer from at the moment, when persecution of the church and hatred between men and women and racism and all that we see in terms of sexual trafficking and the sort of stuff I was saying last week, all of that will have, have gone. Jesus will have returned. The universe will be renewed and God will proclaim, it is done. We're in the eternal age. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is first and last, is the beginning and the end. There's no one before him, there's no one after him. He is the eternal God. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, I want you to note something here, which is also earlier on in the book of Revelation, but I haven't got time to get into it. And it's this. I think that many Christians think when we get to heaven, we'll be in a kind of passionless, emotionless state. I want to suggest to you that when we get to the eternal age, we will still have desires. The difference will be this, that every spiritual desire will be completely satisfied. And so, in a sense, we will still be thirsty because we will still long for more of God, and yet we won't be thirsty because God will satisfy every thirst. All right? So, there's going to be passion and desire, but actually God will satisfy every passion and desire. And the one who conquers will have this heritage or inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is just affirming what is true for us now, but which is eternally true for us, that God is our God and we are his sons and daughters, we are his children. But notice this, there is going to be an eternal separation. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And the second death in the book of Revelation is actually a, a statement of separation uh, from God in the eternal age. There will be a separation uh, of those who have not looked to God and believed in Christ as Savior. And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. I love this verse. Uh, you, you just sense that what's happening here is that this mighty angel is saying to John, come, I want to show you something. And what I want to show you, look, look, it's the bride. And friends, understand this, the bride is the church. And this mighty angel is saying, look, I want you to see the church, 
the bride of Christ. When I was in Brighton, we had a lady in our church that worked in a shop that sold bridal gowns. And uh, uh, I was asking her a bit about it once, and she talked about these uh, ladies that came in to get fitted for their bridal gowns. <laughs> I always remember this. I said to her, when they put on a bridal dress, do their mum, mums get all emotional? It's not their mum, she said, it's their dads. <laughs> They're completely wrecked when they see their daughters in a bridal dress. Uh, such pride, such emotion. And you sense that with this mighty angel. This mighty angel says, come look at the bride. Isn't she wonderful? We need to hear this. You know, we can, we can be a bit disappointed about the church sometime. We feel, oh, where's the breakthrough? Um, you know, got two sites. Hallelujah. Why haven't we got six sites? You know, uh, why haven't we seen more conversions, more baptisms? Why is the church so often it seems on the back foot? You know, we can feel ourselves rather weak and lacking in power and breakthrough. You want to see it from the angel's perspective. Mighty angel says to John, hey, look at this. Look at the church. Look at the bride. Look what Jesus has done. Wonderful picture. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. So that's repeated. Church lives on the earth. And notice this. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, so the church will actually have something of the glory of God about it. Now in Romans 8, it talks about the day of Christ's return when the sons of God will be revealed. You know, people may know that you're a Christian now, but they don't really understand who you are. They might know you go to church, they might know you're quite a moral person, good person, they may know quite a lot about you, know that you're a Christian, you're an evangelical Christian, you claim to be born again, but they don't really know who you are. I tell you, when God, Jesus comes again, the sons of God will be revealed. And we'll be shown for who we are, for all to see, and the church will shine with the glory of God. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And remember that so the church is described both as a city and a bride. It, so here it's been described as a city. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates, uh, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So on the gates of the city of God, are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the foundations actually have on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of Jesus. So it actually represents the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament, if you like. Old Testament church, New Testament church, but coming together as one city of God. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. So it's a square, its length the same as its width. This is the city of God, the people of God, the church. And he measured the city with his rod, it's approximately 1,400 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Now just think of this, a city which is 1,400 miles in that direction and 1,400 miles in that direction. I mean, that would be vast beyond 
imagination. What we've been told here, we're being told that the church, the city of God, will finally be absolutely vast. Right. It's going to be a number redeemed that is too great for us to count. A vast number will finally be saved. But notice this, it's not actually a square. Did you see it? It's le length and width and height are equal. The mathematical ones can therefore tell me it's not a square, it's a cube. All right. So in every dimension, it's the same. This is significant because if you go to the Old Testament, you will find that the Holy of Holies in the very center of the temple was in the shape of a cube. In other words, the church will be the Holy of Holies upon the earth. And where did God live in tangible, manifest glory in the Old Testament? It was in the Holy of Holies. And where will God live with tangible, manifest glory in eternity? It's in the Holy of Holies, which will be the church. And then we've seen the size uh, of the, the church. And you, now you see the security of the church. He also measured its wall, 144 cubics by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Actually, I've never seen that before. When you get to heaven and you see an angel with a tape measure, you say, uh, how do you measure things? Inches? Or do you lose, lose a use a metric system? Well, we use cubits up here. That's obviously what they do. Um, uh, and, uh, but that's a, very thick, that's a very thick wall, and so it speaks of the utter security of the church. And then notice the splendor of the church. The wall was built of jasper, where the city was pure gold, clear as glass, the foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. First, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, oinks, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysophage, jacinth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were made of twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I'm grateful to David Pawson for pointing out something here. He says that if you take any stone and you shine a beam of light on it, I suppose something like a laser beam, and you shine a beam of light on it, the stone will do one of two things. It will either absorb the light or it will refract the light. And if the stone refracts the light, it actually breaks it into seven colors, the seven colors of the rainbow. Each of these stones here refract the light. And John would not have known that when he read this, when he wrote this. But each of the stones refract the light. And it just speaks of the glory, the splendor of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, very good news for you here. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Friends, if Jesus comes sometime this week, you will not have to pay for 502 Ashley Road, all right, because uh, actually there'll be no temple, all right, in, in, in the, the renewed creation, all right. Well, I've been stuck with church building funds all my jolly ministry, it seems to me. Uh, everywhere I move, they start another building fund, and we get another building, and now you're stuck with it as well. Mind you, when I came last year, I don't know if any of you remember me saying this, I preached on a passage that says, who knows if God might turn and give you a blessing? And I said to you, who knows what God might do? And you were looking for 100,000 plus, and that week God gave you 100,000 plus, and you are able to put the offer on 502. Now you've got it, and you've had grants and things, and God's beginning to use that building. Great, isn't it? But actually, no building funds <laughs> in eternity, praise God. I saw no temple in the city because God's there. For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty 
and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Interesting how that's put. It says, the city, remember this is the church, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. So I want to suggest to you the sun and moon will still be there in regenerated form. (laughs) But we won't need the light of the sun or the moon. Why? Because there'll be a greater light. And it'll be the light of the glory of God, which will illuminate the church, the city of God. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, modern commentators have got very interested on this this verse um, because it sounds a bit strange. We're talking here about the eternal age. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Then it talks about the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the church. Uh, And I'm very taken by this suggestion, and it's made by John Stott, uh, amongst others, who says that actually we need to recognize we live in a world where there are different cultures And there can be bad things in culture, but there can be good things in culture. And there are many good things in culture, let's say, like poetry, like singing, uh, like dancing, like arts, like literature. And all these things tend to enhance us and bring color into our lives. And so scholars like John Stott are suggesting, actually, when the eternal age comes, the glory of the kings of the earth, if you like, the nations will bring the splendor of their culture, which is good and redeemed, into the city of God, which is the church in heaven on a renewed earth. And we have such a bland view of heaven so often. We do think of it in very kind of static and rather uh, um, sort of unexciting terms, but actually Surely all culture that is good is going to be redeemed. Why shouldn't there be literature and music and dancing and color in order to enrich the wonder and the glory of heaven? And you're looking at me a bit surprised at this because you might never have heard of it and it might seem almost a bit irreverent. But why shouldn't we build magnificent bridges still? Uh, You can see wonderful architecture in places like Dubai where I've traveled a lot. And uh, you think, wow, why shouldn't all these things be redeemed in heaven on a new earth and actually be enriched in color and culture and glory uh, could be seen there. And this is the kings of the earth that are bringing their splendor into it. And the gates will never be shut, and there'll be no night there. It'll be a place of openness and light. And again, it says, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Again, this word about separation. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Right, you with me for the last chapter? It's nice of uh, Vicky Stamp to say so anyway. And then the, uh, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as, as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This recalls Ezekiel, the river of life that really flows from the throne of God in the temple. This is all about life flowing. See how this is picked up? On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Now, let me say something else here about heavens. I'm often asked, will we eat in heaven? There's a lot of indication in the Bible that we will eat in heaven. 
All right, so this is more good news for you. All right, it's slightly hinted at here when it talks of 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. Now, my wife is thrilled about this because whenever we sit down and have a meal, what she wants to eat for dessert is oranges and apples and bananas. What I want to eat is yogurts and uh, chocolate puddings. But actually, it's going to be, uh, uh, the, the indication is here, there's going to be plenty of fruit. Jesus said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. Uh, until I enter into the kingdom. And, of course, at the uh, consummation of the end of the age is when the church is joined to Jesus Christ. There's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb. And uh, wedding suppers are good times of eating. You might say, oh, it's only metaphorical. Uh, you know, Book of Revelation has a lot of picture language. Sure, it's only metaphorical. I think you would be very disappointed if actually you got... Uh, uh, to heaven and we're told that we're going to have the wedding supper of the Lamb now, but it's only metaphorical. Uh, I think you'd be disappointed, actually, if you had a wedding now when you were told that. So you have a wedding here uh, and uh, perhaps Matt takes a, services, takes a service and then uh, what do you do? Go out in the garden there for six hours of photographs and uh, uh, you get through that. Uh, and then the, bride, the, the best man stands up and he says, uh, thanks so much for coming. Hope you've enjoyed the wedding service. I know you've been invited uh, to the wedding supper. I just want to tell you, though, I'm afraid it's only metaphorical. Yeah. I was once in Dubai and I said to the church there, which is very multicultural, I said, I, I wonder how you'd react. I think you'd react according to your culture. Uh, and so if you were told that, uh, uh, that actually there was no wedding supper, it was just metaphorical, I'd say, if you were English, I know what you'd do, you'd grumble. Oh, you know, it's typical, isn't it? You know, come along, expect to, you know, you're not going to get any food. I blame the government, it's austerity and cuts. So, you know, we, we'd go on like that. If I can address Bry Corner over here, if you were South African, actually what you would do, you'd say, we'll make a plan. Uh, because that's what South Africans do. They always say, we'll make a plan. We had a lot of Indians in the congregation in uh, Dubai, so I said, what would you do? I said, I know what you'd do. you set lights on the order of service and throw it in the air and have a riot, because that's what Indians do. <laughs> and then we had a lot of Filipinos, very gentle, loving community people. I said, what would you do? I said, I know what you'd do. You'd link hands, you'd sing to one another, because that's what Filipinos do. But we'd all react differently, um, but actually we'd all be pretty disgruntled if it was only metaphorical. Uh, I want to suggest to you that there's good evidence from the Bible that we will actually eat in heaven. Um, it gets, obviously, a, a bit more difficult when people say to me, well, what will we eat? Um, and I have to say that in the Old Testament, there's perhaps a picture of heaven which suggests that the lion will lay down with the lamb, those kind of verses, that the animal kingdom will be at peace. And by the way, why shouldn't there be an animal kingdom in a renewed earth? Right. I'm not suggesting that your bunny called Choppy is going to be regenerated, um, but, you know, if we've got a magnificent animal kingdom now, why not in the new heavens and the new earth? But it will be an animal kingdom that's at peace with each other. So when it comes to eating food, I have to say chocolate's on, but I think the barbecue's probably off. I mean, you can't really barbecue the lamb, can you? I mean, it's a, um, <laughs> you do that this afternoon, but not other times. <laughs> No longer will there be anything... Uh, oh, no, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I used to teach there is so much sickness that remains in the church, despite the fact that we pray and we see miracles. We've had a great testimony this morning. We do see people healed. But we know that in the church we're always battling sickness. And maybe this is saying to us uh, that actually in a renewed earth, a new order, remember that actually there'll be no sickness. It's the healing 
that will take place, the healing of the nations. But then somebody pointed out to me, it's probably a little more profound than that. We live in a world where nation is against nation. And the nations will come together in heaven. The redeemed from every nation, from every people group will come together. And actually, it means that there'll be total healing. There'll be no separation, no barriers, no warfare, no hatred. Christians from Israel will be alongside Christians from Palestine. And Christians from Iraq will be alongside Christians from Iran. And Christians from England will be alongside Christians from France. I mean, we'll, 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 all, we'll all be in there, all right? And uh, there's the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And obviously we're called out now to be worshippers of God, out of death into life, out of darkness into light, in order to declare the praises of our God and King. And forever we will be worshippers. I love the old hymn that says, Father of mercies, love's reward, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. And we'll gaze on God and we will worship. And then it says, they will see his face. Actually, I don't know how we'll see the face of God because God is pure spirit. And I can't explain that to you. But in some way, in that situation, we will see the face of God. And his name will be on their foreheads. Earlier on in the book of Revelation, we, we read that the name of God is sealed onto us, like it's branded onto our foreheads. No, that means we will look into the face of God, and God will look into our face, and he will recognize us, that we belong to him. And night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, and the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I don't want you to think of this as a passive statement. When it says that we will reign forever and ever, I want to suggest that we are going to be highly active in the new creation. You know that when people die today, they often get put in a grave with a headstone that says, R.I.P., rest in peace. Do you really want to rest in peace for all eternity? I mean, you know, after I've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, I've no less days to rest in peace than when I first began. You know, and uh, how long have you been here? Oh, I've been here about uh, 20,000 years so far. What have you been doing? Just resting in peace. You know. <laughs> I'm sure that, that must sound awesomely boring to most people. And it's not biblical. Now, obviously, there is a peace in the sense that we have peace with God. Obviously, we have that peace, and we enjoy that peace, which is translated outwardly into joy. But do you remember what happened when Adam and Eve were first put in the garden? They were told to work really hard. All right? They had to look after uh, the Garden of Eden. They had to steward the earth. They had responsibility. And the Bible does suggest we'll have responsibility. It talks about responsibility for cities. Now, you might say, well, the last thing I want in heaven is responsibility, but this will be responsibility without pressure. I do not think we live fulfilled lives unless we are working. And actually, God will, as part of our worship to him, have things for us to do. We will have a creation in some way to look after. We will be reigning over all things, even as God's intention is for us now, although we've fallen, and so we don't do what we should do. 
but in heaven, in a renewed earth, we will carry that responsibility and we will be utterly fulfilled. And then you come into the last part of the book of Revelation. <coughs> and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And uh, I know our soon is not the same as God's soon. And uh, we think, when's Christ coming back? And it says soon. And it seems to be so delayed. But God is on flexi time with God. One day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And to God it's soon. Behold, says Jesus, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets. And those who keep the words of this book worship God. Now, everybody worships something. We often say that, that people outside the church are worshipping all sorts of things. Uh, there are idols, uh, uh, materialism, money. Uh, there's so much that's worshipped by people who are looking to fill the God-shaped blank in their life, and they must find something to worship. Our danger, if we are Christian believers, is actually we tend to worship good things, but not God. And we need to be careful about that. And, you know, I've known people who kind of as Christians, almost worshipped a great Bible teacher. Um, or you can almost worship the idea of a, a huge church. You can begin to worship things that in themselves are good, but, not, but are not God. And let's be careful about that. That actually, of course, what we do is worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. People tend to set out on a course of life and tend to stay with it. It's hard to win people who are doing evil from doing evil. But when we're righteous, we can keep doing righteousness. And when we're holy, we can keep doing holiness. Behold, I'm coming soon, says it again, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Everybody in in the world who has ever lived, the Bible says again and again, and it's very clear in Revelation, is going to be judged for what they have done. Now you might say, surely as Christians we're not judged for what we have done, surely we are saved by faith, not because of what we have done. And yes we are. For us, that judgment has passed away completely. We cannot do anything to earn our salvation. But there will still be an assessment of the way that we've lived our lives as Christians. And the Bible is very clear on this. We can gain or lose reward accordingly. So let's not take our Christian lives casually. Right? Let's give ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ and receive the best rewards. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Very important that Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that Jesus is not the eternal God. God actually twice in the book of Revelation, gives himself an eternal title. It's there, one of the verses we re already looked at in chapter 21 and verse 6. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the first, the last, I am the beginning and the end. Nothing and no one before me, nothing and no one after me. God is the eternal God, first and last, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Here, in verse 13, it's Jesus speaking, or chapter 22, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus gives himself the same title of eternity as the Father does. Jesus is the eternal God. He is one with God. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Uh, so for those who are Christians, it's symbolized in the book of Revelation that we've washed our robes and we've been covered with a robe of righteousness and purity. Again, the separation outside of the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And again, a claim by Jesus of eternal deity. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, descended from David according to the flesh, born of a virgin woman, but eternally the root of David, because Jesus has always existed. David came from the creation of Jesus. So Jesus is the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Now, mostly Christians tend to think that that is the church inspired by the spirit saying to Jesus, please fulfill your promise and come back. And I don't want to suggest that is not contained there. Maybe it is right to see that contained there, and that's certainly our heart. We want to say to Jesus, please come. We see the mess. Please come and set it right. But notice how the verse goes on. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. <coughs> so this verse may also actually be saying that besides calling out to Jesus, come back, we're actually saying to those as yet unredeemed and unsaved, you come, you come, because you can join in this. This can be part of your portion. You can know this eternal life. You can live in a new heavens and a new earth. Come. And so to Jesus we say, come. And to those that are unredeemed, we say, come and drink. Take of the water of life. And there's a warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Don't tamper or mess about with the word of God. And once more, right at the end of the Bible, the promise, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And the church responds, Maranatha, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the last word of the New Testament is grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. New heavens, new earth. A day when God says it is done in redeemed bodies, we will live on a redeemed earth, in a redeemed creation, which I believe we will have the freedom to explore for all eternity. And we will reign alongside Christ with responsibility, our hearts and minds always set on the worship of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who has redeemed us. I tell you this, the earth will be renewed. Let's stand together, can we? <coughs>
Father, we thank you so much for these final words of the book of Revelation. Thank you that the whole book is, uh, of the Bible is your revelation. But we thank you it speaks so powerfully of that which is to come right at the end. Father, I pray that we might sense we have responsibility for this world now because we are in training for reigning. But Father, we thank you that we can look to a day when not only is our soul renewed, but our body will also be renewed and the whole cosmos will be renewed. And we thank you that Jesus will gather all things together in perfection in a whole new order and we will reign alongside the King. And we thank you that for all eternity we will be obsessed and passionate with the one who has redeemed us. Thank you for such a glorious future and such a hope. Amen.